Oliver Callan on RTE Radio 1. And you're very welcome back. Paul Markey is in the studio with us. Good morning to you, Paul. Good morning. You are a projectionist in the IFI, uh, the film centre there in, in Temple Bar in yes, Dublin. Yes, that's it. Yeah, there's a few of us left still floating around and a couple of us in the IFI. Um, yeah, it's. Uh, I guess it's It's still considered a bit of a romantic job. Is it? You know, yeah. It's, uh, yeah, a few cinemas still run film, you know, actually moving pictures. And a lot of multiplexes are now uh, digitized, so it's a lot of servers. We tend we have a mixture in the IFI because we have the Irish Film Archive there. So um, it's you know I guess it turns your personality. Like if you like working alone in the dark, <laughs> the radio is a bit similar. Um, that's that's the job for you, and I I, I do yeah. like that. You know. So yeah. in most cinemas we go to, there's nobody there behind the projection. Yeah, these days it's the because it's window. because it's all digital. It's often remotely. Um, controlled or all the maintenance is done from often outside the country um, because right. of technology you can you can remotely connect to the projectors and make any corrections but um, there's a few cinemas with, a, with still some of us up there in the IFI there's always someone up in the booth in the IFI so yeah we do long shifts What's the romance of it? Is it the physical handling of actual film? Does it make a certain sound as well? Yeah there's the, the very familiar uh, chug chugging of the yeah, projector yeah. which which I love you yeah. know it's only when you when you leave the building you, you notice oh it's like a, a noise that vanishes from your life but uh, and that's mixed these days with server fans as well so but um, especially uh, I just love when we run uh, we do it fairly often we run a 70 millimeter, which is the largest film stock available right. and that has a, a feel and a tone all to itself and a smell a, feeling. a feel and yeah, and a yeah and a smell to it because the celluloid heats up as it goes through. And if you're doing a whole series of shows, because often we would do special shows, but recently with Oppenheimer, it was on three or four times a day for months. And that was a, a hell of on a job film. on film. So uh, I actually had to wear ear protectors for that one because it was so constant. Normally, if you do one show, you're okay. But yeah. constantly, one show after another. All day. But it was a joy to do. It really was. You know? I was about to say, did the romance suddenly disappear when you're doing it all day long? No, because I, I mean, I, I do... One of the things is, as a projectionist, you do get you can watch films repeatedly, but you can watch you watch parts of films again and again and again. You know, you kind of, oh, here's here's the bomb coming up, so I'll watch that, and I'll look at the background and look at the extras behind, and oh, you'll see things because yeah. it's a kind of a little bit of a privilege because normally you wouldn't watch a film that often at home, maybe once twice a year if you loved it, but constantly day after day for months you start to see things so you you're looking out through the little window yeah. in the projection booth yeah yeah and uh, uh, you get to, and you see you get to see you know uh, the the heads or the bums on seats from up in the booth you can see how busy something is just by glancing out and you can see a constant and it's, it's great when something is as popular as that because yeah. it was just very busy and it was Especially post-pandemic, it's great to see people back in the cinema. It is. Yeah. Is it has it been maintained, or was it? Is it just really for the kind of marquee moments now? Um, no, it has been consistent. Especially, I think in the last few months, this time of the year, usually it's uh, it's the award season, so you do get um, a lot of the Oscar movies don't come out this part of the world till kind of this January now, to March. Yeah. yeah. So in American recent months, fiction, I think that's only, that's only yes, quite a few. Yeah, them, yeah. It didn't get released Christmas, surprisingly, which is a Christmas themed film. But we had. Uh, Zone of Interest recently, uh, which was pretty amazing, and it's you, on the list. I haven't seen it. Yeah, oh, it's a must-see cinema experience because it's all about the sound, 
Um, yeah. And you can see, you can often see word of mouth affecting films where a film will, it'll be, it'll do reasonable business first week and then, oh, it's really busy second week, busier the third week. People are talking and telling each isn't other that, to come and see that it. interesting? It's great to see that, yeah. And that's definitely come back, I think, especially in the last year, you can really see uh, people really want to get out there and uh, have that um, uh, unique um, experience sitting with a crowd again, word as much as that seemed terrible to think of even a couple of years ago. You so know? you have the lovely um, chug chug sound, uh, then you, you handle digital film. Yeah. What, what's what's digital film? Is it? The, well, essentially, the, the like uh, it's a massive digital file. So, like in the case of Dune, for example, or Dune Two this time, um, that was shot on digital IMAX, uh, huge, um, f- uh, huge screen. Yeah. Um, it was um, transferred to film, actual film, and then the film itself was digitized because okay. uh, Denis Villeneuve wanted to get that film look still in the digital copy. So even though it was coming through a, a digital projector from a server, it actually looked like a film uh, rather than trying to put a, a you know, uh, something artificial on the picture. Would you, notice, would you notice the big difference? You would, because you do see a grain, a film grain. grain. And yeah, that, yeah. Um, I, I think, like, City Files would like, hey, look at the grain. But uh, for the general public, it's probably something you, you, you would notice if it wasn't there, as opposed to seeing it, it was present. You'd you have know? to kind of run in one screen. Yeah. You yeah, you'd say, I don't know what's wrong with that picture. And you'd, often it's, oh, it's very digital. It's, it's not running on film, you know, so... Uh. <laughs> The IFI, they have lovely, nice, old-school rooms, don't they? Particularly the main one. Yeah, uh, with uh, three screens. Because uh, it used to be uh, a Quaker meeting room building. So we in, in the second screen, it retains that sort of uh, style to it. Um, but uh, yeah, screen one is my favourite. That's just, We have seven... Uh, seven track sound in there which is very special extra two speakers more than oh, most that makes a difference. Yeah. do you have a favourite screen in Ireland if, can um, you say it if it's not in the building no it used to be well as a cinema goer before I was a projectionist it used to be uh, Savoy 1 yeah. but it's that's evolved into a kind of a um, I suppose a multiplex really so it's not really so special anymore but if you do get a, a film occasion when that room is it's, I think it's the biggest room yeah. isn't it, in terms of uh, seats uh, nearly a thousand seats yeah. in, the, in the room if you get an audience fully interacting with a film, that's you, the best. It's a special atmosphere, isn't it? Yeah, it's yeah. One. It's just lovely. Film festivals were great for that. So you'd always get a. Um, back in the day, um, the Dublin Film Festival was even more special than it is now because um, of distribution. Now things come out, get go to streaming, come out quite quick. Mm. But it, it would often be your only chance to see a film would be with a huge crowd would be in, in and Savoy so One would absolute best for that. And if it's but a film that kind of messes with your sense of reality, would you come out onto a yeah. the street after well, it? That, that's one of my favourite experiences of being a cinema goer all my life is like um, if you went to an afternoon show and you come out and it's dark. It's like, whoa, things have changed. You really feel <laughs> something. And you do still get that experience now and then, you know, when they go as a cinema goer. Somebody's already in the text here, here saying, I loved it when there were film projectionists because they kept the lights off until the credits had finished. Yeah, I really try. Yeah. Like, as, again, I'm always approaching things as a projectionist from a cinema going point of view because I've loved cinema my life. So I just try and maintain the atmosphere because especially with some movies, you want to let the story sink in, even as the credits roll. You don't want to swill, you know, lights up out you go it's like, like a pub or something like that no. but you want to sit there and contemplate often what you saw so I try and be very careful with that and just break, set them to, to come up at a, a reasonable amount of time and, and some films you know they, they deliberately want to keep you in your seat until mm. the very end 
Um, I remember there was, I can't remember the, there was an Iranian movie some years ago. Uh, I think it was called The Divorce, if I remember. But they kept um, a separation, it was called. And they kept, uh, you didn't know the, the final result of the story. Like the person is waiting uh, outside the court on the bench as the credits roll. The audience stayed in their seats. I brought the lights up. The audience stayed in their seats. They didn't want to leave. They wanted to see what was going to happen. And then it finished. So you're left <laughs> wondering <laughs> what was the, uh, that was kind of the point of the story. That was the point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That but it's beautiful it. when you see that interaction with the audience. Yeah, yeah. it's wonderful. People are saying horror movies and comedy films are the best to view with an audience. Absolutely. Yeah, especially comedy. Comedies. Yeah, yeah, comedies are the best with a Coen Brothers movie with a full house. You can't beat that. In fact, there's some films you may not find, you may not start out finding it funny yourself, but when the rest of the audience yeah. is in, it's, it becomes contagious. Isn't that the, the best way? Now, we better get, I could talk all day about projections, sure. but we talk about um, Dune Part 2. Um, Olivia Fahey is on the phone from, uh, from geekireland.com. Good morning to you, Olivia. Good morning, morning. Sorry, I'm not in there with you. No, thank you very much for battling through the schnachter, but you're you're all right. Uh, you're going through your own <laughs> epic adventure. <laughs> I am. You know, I didn't think I'd be stuck in the car for two hours this morning. So, <laughs> okay, God, you'll need a film after that. Uh, come here to me. Um, uh, give us a brief overview. First of all, geekireland.com. This is a go-to place for nerds, isn't it? Oh, it is indeed. So we cover everything from film and television series to comic books, video games, and just everything that kind of encompasses in uh, the geek culture and geekdom and things Brilliant. like that. So it's uh, it's honestly it's a great uh, great website to work on. I have to say it is, and well done to, on the success because I know it was in recent enough times um, um, taken over there by DMG Media, which does the Irish Daily Mail and all that kind of carry on. I believe. Yeah, it was indeed. We were, it's about nearly three years with them now. Three so years. It's been, um, yeah, well it's been wonderful. Stable. And to establish yeah. Paul Markey's nerd credentials even more, in case you doubted them, you were you worked in Forbidden um, Forbidden yeah, Planet. I managed too. Forbidden Planet. The first few years it was open on Dawson Street. Yeah, I was very young, but it was, a, it was an amazing experience, I can tell you that. Yeah. <laughs> Geekireland.com before, yeah. there was, yeah. before there was the internet. Okay, so Dune Part 2. Olivia, you've already done a, a big review on this for Geek Ireland. Uh, tell us what you made of it. So for me, as much as it is like visually spectacular and the score is absolutely brilliant, I actually just found that the first, say, hour, it just dragged on so long. And I actually found that the end of part one kind of ended in a very similar fashion. So it definitely picked up right where part one left off in that sense. Right, and pace. I actually, okay. it just, it, I just could not get into it for at least a solid hour. And there was even a couple of sequences in there that it wasn't necessarily clear that it was actually jumping a few, like a bit of a timeline jump in between the scenes. I actually thought that it was a continuation of the scenes. Doesn't help that it's all in the desert and it doesn't look very different. It but, that for me, I, it just took me out of it a little bit. But then the minute that Austin Butler came onto the screen, suddenly the story just really picks up and you're just hooked from there on. Brilliant. Uh, did you love the first one? I didn't love it. Okay. I actually, because it just didn't really know where to end for me, I just felt yeah. that I think I'm so used to seeing films that once you get that big crescendo with like a battle or something like that, yeah, totally it kind of just dies down a little bit, but it's still, you end on a bit of a high. Whereas this, I felt it kind of just kept going in a kind of downward spiral sort of thing and you just didn't know where it was going to end. There was a few different points where it looked like that's where it was leading to. But it, it just kept going then afterwards. So where it did finish off, it was a good point, but it just took a bit too long for me to get there. This is part one you're talking about still? 
That was for part one. Yes, yeah. Yes, for because, part two, um, I find I find the ending was much much better. Much better because there is an ending, whereas the first one is is half a story, isn't it? That's the idea. Uh, if, <laughs> Pretty if, much. Yeah. Olivia, if someone doesn't know anything about Dune and they're kind of thinking science fiction, that's not for me. I'm not going to see that. They're kind of wrong, first of all, aren't they? I mean, can you describe it to people who who aren't familiar with this universe? So there's a couple of different comparisons you can make, and while. There's a lot that you can do with, in terms of sci-fi. Um, I was chatting with someone recently and they were like, is it a bit something like Hamlet? And I was like, actually, I hadn't thought of it in that sense, but <laughs> there's definitely a comparison that can be made there. So it is this young guy whose father uh, is offered this big new job and essentially the people who had been doing the job want it back and it ends up being a big fight over this position. And I think that's kind of in layman's terms how you can describe it, but without spoiling too much, there is a bit more kind of linkage to the Hamlet tale in that sense of, you know, how the battle's going on and the results of it and how in part two, you know, it's up to Paul now to try and, I don't want to say reclaim his throne, but, you know, reclaim his throne. He does, yeah. He's going around to reclaim this desert planet and water is obviously very uh, pertinent to the whole story. Uh, Paul uh, Paul Markey, um do you concur with that? Is it? Yeah, for the for the most part, um, it is. There is. It's unclear sometimes with the timeline. How long is he out in the desert? And you know, it, it's partly biblical. Like he's, he's on the run essentially in the yes. first film, isn't he? And that's and how he, he ends up in the desert. He's with um, you know uh, the freemen. They're called the free men. I think it's direct from. Mm. But um, sometimes you're kind of wondering how long is he out in the desert? They think he's the messiah. Like how long is that to be taking? So there's a couple of jumps in there. I think there's probably been edits, or they, it it was initially I, I I suspect longer than two hours and forty five minutes, which is the running time of the That's film. That's the running time of part yeah. two. Do you did you enjoy it? I did. Um, I usually often I'm very much as I've gotten older, the shorter the movie, the better I find. So I'm very particular about long films, and I didn't find I didn't find this one dragged for me. Because um, uh, as Olivia pointed out, the pace does pick up. After you get your, your feet stuck in the desert for the first hour, the pace picks up a lot after that. Very and good. you start to really get into the machinations of what's going on between the, the houses that are fighting over, over the rights for the spices, the spice. Tell us what the spice is. It's essentially it's narcotic. <laughs> and because, you know, Frank Herbert comes from those books originally came out in 1965. 1965 so, is original, yeah. Yeah, so it, it comes from magic mushrooms. It would make sense with yeah, that era of from that period of, of experimentation. Um, um, but uh, they weren't initially hugely successful uh, at all, but they really gained momentum, momentum over years. And more of them were published until they became a cornerstone for science fiction. Uh, at the time, 60s, massively, 70s, massively yeah. influential. Yes, uh, we wouldn't have science fiction. No, no, they, they, George, the Chilean, it's Chilean filmmaker George Dodowski who initially tried to make a film out of this. Legendarily <laughs> tried to make one of this. No, uh, just a warning: yeah. we're going deep dive nerd yeah. at the moment. But tell us about Jodorowsky, and uh, feel free to jump in here, Olivia, because there's no doubt you know who this man is. He set out to make yeah, this. Like it's yeah, definitely it, a, it was. It, it's, it's a big story and a big book and a lot of people have been, you know, fans of it for so long that it has been nice to see it be adapted onto the big screen in such a big, epic way, especially compared to the, the original adaptation, which was definitely more uh, campy, shall we say. Yeah. But Jodorowsky, he was the first one. He wanted to make the Dune film and the movie was never made, but all of his kind of preparation, the work he did becomes massively influential. Uh, why? Can you, can you explain how? 
Well, uh, the, the, when he failed to get the money together, um, the book, he did create a book which compiled all his pre-production work, all the paintings and drawings, the script and his potential casting into a huge tome. And this circulated Hollywood for years and it influenced everything. Uh, Star Wars. Star Wars, uh, The Fifth Element, so many films. Um, you can even argue Stargate, the massive uh, television. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, that book, only 20 copies were ever made, and I think there's only six left in circulation. And it's uh, the last copy went for three million uh, at auction some years ago. But um, but the design of creatures and everything. Yes, the design um, of uh, basically the tone. Uh, it was much more psychedelic, yeah. as you can imagine. Uh, like all the different uh, families or the houses so all had their own style and fashion. Again, the story is about all these feuding families yes. trying to take control of this planet. Essentially, anyway, yeah. If we've lost anyone. Kind of Game of Thrones, but in the, in the desert and so on. Yeah. Uh, but he got a designer, a really influential designer for the uh, film that was never made. Yeah, uh, Mebius, or Mebius, the French uh, graphic artist, and uh, Dan O'Bannon, who went on to write Alien. And you can even see some influences of the style of Jardinowski's ideas in in Alien and Giger and Giger yes who yeah. who went really did all the creature uh, design because the giant worm con- there's other I mean, the, the, concepts the, the, when you see the, the images that Giger creates for the movie that's not made yeah. it's it's the Alien film yes it's, exactly it's Scott's yeah. entire Alien universe isn't yeah, it? yeah it's uh, it, it just influenced so many people um, uh, directly or indirectly you know because once films were created influenced by it those films then pre- influenced other movies so I think George Arthur's kind of proud it's the most influential film never made and there's uh, a great documentary about it we have a clip of it here and you'll, you'll capture just how much of a how much of a character Jodorowsky is talking about Dune what do you want to do? I say Dune I say yes I didn't read Dune but I have a friend who said it was fantastic David Carradine, Mick Jagger, Dali as the Mad Emperor of the Galaxy. Dali, they can I have a burning giraffe? All right, all right, we'll have burning giraffe. Or somewhere. Yeah, I say, I don't want to do it. I say, if you do the picture, I will hire the chef of the restaurant and you will eat as here every day. And I say, I do it. Giger, he make the monster of Alien. And Hollywood start to use my group. <laughs> That's a clip from that documentary. <laughs> but it's interesting, he's talking about, you know, the world that he creates. And this is why. Uh, we're so fascinated and you become slightly obsessed with Dune isn't, it? isn't that fair to say Olivia? Honestly it is and I think you can even hear it there just that his passion it really yeah. just emulates out of him which is to me I always find that really infectious because when people are really passionate about something you can just tell and that makes you more inclined to want to see it so even sometimes when I'm reviewing a film if, if even if I'm kind of like look I enjoyed it even though other people may say that it wasn't a good film if I enjoyed it and I'm really passionate about it people are like oh maybe I'll give it a go then and I think it's just a case of it's just a difference sort of a vibe kind of thing because if someone's just kind of like poo-pooing over something you're kind of just like oh well I don't really want to be getting involved in that <laughs> And um, the next up then, David Lynch actually did make, he managed to make a film. And if you say, if you talk about Dune to David Lynch now, what's his reaction generally? <laughs> I think it varies depending on who, who you ask. But what I thought was really nice is that um, at the New York premiere, a lot of the cast actually showed up to the Dune Part 2 premiere. So you had um, Sting was there and he was even offering um, Austin Butler I think, was it the character's like underwear or something that he was well, wearing yeah, he, on in the film? I or think he only like wears underwear for most of the <laughs> yeah. time the Lynch version. Yeah. And uh, I, pa- Patrick I just Stewart thought that was, was so funny. Well. He was, yeah. yeah. Patrick Stewart is he in was, as well. Yeah. 
And uh, well, I think he even have... mentions that in his autobiography as well, which I thought was quite interesting. Someone even says here on the text, saw the original Dune. It's excellent. The first of the remakes, boring as hell. So I can imagine the second part to be mind-dumbing hype. I don't see the attraction. This, this is David well, honestly, if you yeah, are in that, If you are that kind of way inclined, I would say do give Dune part two a chance because as much as I'm saying, look, it dragged for me, I don't think it's the the masterpiece that people are kind of hailing it as yeah. but there is still a lot of good in there and because it does end on such a high mm. I do think it is still worth going to see and especially in the cinema and maybe the kids who didn't grow up uh, watching Lawrence of Arabia nerding out this is kind of their moment for them isn't it here's David Lynch talk- I think so, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah yeah here's David Lynch talking about Dune I I sold out so it was um, it was a slow dying the death and a terrible, terrible experience. Did you regret making it? Yes, uh, except um, it just nailed this idea, never, ever do a film without Final Cut. The, he regrets making it. He's a proper tortured uh, artist. Yeah. But it's still a lot of fun. It's a bit of crack. Yeah, it's it very, is, very, yeah. it's very, very camp. Um, we must talk about the cast. You mentioned Austin Butler. He's not in the first part. He appears in the second part, and he has a striking appearance, Olivia. Oh my goodness, he does. And um, a lot of people were asking him, like, what was it like to live without eyebrows? And he was like, I didn't. What they did was they actually made him a cap that came down right into his eyelids. Oh, right. That covered up all of his hair and his eyebrows because he was moving on to an indie project afterwards. I think it's actually the the Motorcycle Diaries or something like that. Um, And then he, so they were like, we can't afford to make you a wig. And fake eyebrows, so but they can afford to make you a, a bald cap. So yeah. any chance you can get them to do that, and they did. And he said that he kind of like got used to it. And like the minute that he saw himself with no eyebrows and um, the blackened teeth and things, that uh, that he was able to kind of like, get more into the mindset. And after seeing him as Elvis, you can kind of see just how like committed he was to the the character. And he actually gets to show off a little bit more, I think, of some of his like fight choreography skills. And he's a very, Great. very powerful presence on the screen. And there's a huge duel between himself and Paul, played by Timothy Chalamet, which is very important. Florence Pugh as well, joining the cast here and Christopher Walken. Uh, but in the main cast, Josh Brolin, Rebecca Ferguson is in there, Stellan Skarsgård, Zendaya, of course, just huge, huge cast. There's a lot to attract. Oh, it's absolutely massive, yeah. yeah. And I think there's there's absolutely no weak link in it either, which is very impressive because usually there's always going to be kind of, well, Paul may disagree with me on this, but I've always kind of find in a lot of these things when it is such a big, massive cast, there's always kind of one dud. But in this, I didn't find anything at all. Look, you have those of us who are interested, very excited all together, and those who are, are not that way inclined uh, will stay that way. So, but uh, give it a go. Isn't that? Is yes, that it's, of- it's an immersive experience. It's a great reason to go back to the cinema. You, you, you won't regret it, like, especially with this weather. You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah. It's very good for the cinema, isn't yeah. it? Uh, it has Western, it has war in it. Anyway, uh, Olivia Fahey, geekireland.com, thank you so much for joining us. And Paul Markey, keep the projectionist chug chugging. We'll do, we'll do. Thanks, about 51551, that's the text. Email oliver at rte.ie. 